It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. This is episode 37, Raised Questions. Hi again, everyone. Bob Gassell here. And uh, as always, I'm here with two guys who are awaiting their clever introductions. First, here's a clever introduction for Matthew Conium. <laughs> Thank you. That was an extremely clever introduction. And here's an even better one for Noah Diamond. Here's a clever response to your <laughs> clever introduction. Ah. <laughs> You know, I was thinking, ever since we started doing this podcast way back when, we've been barraged by suggestions from our audience of guests that they would like to hear. Guys, refresh my memory. Who are some of the names that always come up? Uh, Melinda Marks, top top of the list, I think. Um, Richard Anobili, oft request. Anyone other than Jay Hopkins. <laughs> Mel Brooks. People say, why don't you have Mel Brooks on the yeah. show? I always say, sure. Yeah. He'll do it. Drop him a line. <laughs> him and Woody together. Wonderful. <laughs> but among all these, well, actually the ones we haven't pissed off, there is one name. Total. <laughs> <laughs> there is one name that is still making Marx Brothers news to this very day. And that, of course, is Steve Stolier. Now, for those who aren't familiar with Steve, uh, as a college student back in the 1970s, he helped lead the movement to bring animal crackers back to the uh, screen after 20 years of legal entanglements. Groucho and Aaron were so impressed with his efforts that uh, he was hired to work in Groucho's house, uh, answering fan mail, organizing the archives, and whatnot. Um, in 1996, Steve put out the universally acclaimed account of those years entitled Raised Eyebrows. It has since been updated, expanded, revised, and uh, turned into an audiobook read by Steve, which I can't recommend highly enough. It's just fantastic. And the uh, story doesn't appear to be over because, well, let's keep our fingers crossed. Hopefully it will soon live on as a major motion picture. However, since we've already had Steve on the show, sort of uh, in a vintage interview by Jay Hopkins, we weren't sure how to do this without, you know, just rehashing the same old stuff. Luckily, in our quest to do a podcast with as little work as possible, we came up with the perfect solution. Have our listeners submit questions for Steve. Uh, that way, you guys do all the work and we get all the accolades. So, let's welcome into the show, the one and only Steve Stolier. Howdy. Nice to see your faces, which none of the listeners can do. They're better off that way, aren't they? Probably. So this is our first time actually having you on the show. You appeared once before, but that was in a 1979 interview uh, done by our friend Jay Hopkins. Yes, my longtime close friend Jay. That's known as Screamin' Jay Hopkins, who, of course, recorded <laughs> I Put a Spell on You many years ago. Uh, <laughs> lovingly stabbed me in the back by releasing my uh, old <laughs> interview with so he, he stole whatever thunder I might conceivably have. <laughs> um, but no, he did it with my blessing, and I listened yeah. to it ahead of time to make sure there wasn't anything really scandalous. And I'll tell you, since you didn't ask, mm. I'll okay. tell you what was interesting to me about listening to that interview, because I think that was probably the first time I had ever sat down to be interviewed. Yeah. The other times I was standing, apparently. I, uh, cause it was only 
I'd like two years after Groucho died and Jay wanted mm-hmm. to interview me for his uh, Remarks magazine. Mm-hmm. And when I listened to it, I was kind of, I was startled to hear how identical the stories I told, the phrases I used, the analogies I drew, the adjectives I used to describe things that were at the time very fresh and relatively recent experiences. And now when I'm doing different people's podcasts and I say, you know, how did you get the job and what was Groucho like and those sorts of questions, it's interesting that my story hasn't really morphed over the years. So I guess if you were either a policeman or an attorney, you would say (laughs) that lends credibility to my input that it isn't like, well, in 1979, you said that uh, so-and-so hired you, and now you're saying, which is it? Were you lying then, or are you lying now? Anyway, that's what I found interesting, was how uh, unchanged my narrative was. So apparently, I have very little imagination. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, anyhow, like I said, we, you know, you've covered a lot of this ground on other podcasts, and even actually on one of ours. So we are going to open the floor up to our listeners and have them ask you questions, okay? You mean live? Live right now? They're waiting in the wings? No. No, no. Our wings are clipped. Okay. But before we get to our specific questions, the number one thing that obviously came up when people were submitting them was, what's the status of the raised eyebrows uh, motion picture? There's a lot of misinformation out there, so we're going to give you the floor and you can set the record straight. What's going on with it? You know, I have a letter from Steve Allen that says, I hope this sets the record straight, which is more than my pioneer turntable can do. (laughs) I cherish that. Uh, Yes, there is a lot of misinformation, understandably, I suppose. Um, Rob Zombie had been attached to it. And contrary to what so many people felt at the time, it was not a horrible idea. And I actually took umbrage. Uh, but I gave it back uh, when I was finished with I took umbrage at the idea that I would have, you know, sold my cow for a handful of worthless beans to someone who was going to destroy the film or turn it into some schlocky horror movie or something like that. Because Rob and I were very much on the same page, literally and figuratively. And it was a fairly seamless union of two people from different backgrounds. And what ultimately happened with that, I think, was that the money people couldn't get past him being typecast as a horror guy. They looked at what he had done and said, this is all he can do. And I even wrote an op-ed for The Hollywood Reporter talking about all of the mainstream directors who started in horror, people at Corman and went on and ended up with Robert Wise, who started out with Curse of the Cat People and ended up directing West Side Story and Sound of Music. So please don't judge people only by what they've done. And I've encountered that in my own career as a writer. Well, you did this and this. You've written a 30-minute and a 60-minute show, but our show's 45 minutes, so there's no way you would work out on our show. So uh, ultimately, Rob left because we just kind of hit this wall on uh, – it. we managed to get it to a certain point and had a good script uh, – But ultimately, there was too much resistance to giving him the freedom to to do a non-horror movie. So Mm -hmm. the the production company, Cold Iron Pictures, had optioned it 
And they were still set on making a film out of my book. And I was pleased that they were, even though I, it was kind of bittersweet because it, Rob and I really did get along well and we're still buds. And uh, mm -hmm. I remember when I was talking to him on the phone for the first time and he said, you're weirding me out because you sound like Alice Cooper's agent secretary is weirding me out. And I said, well, I can sound like someone else if it makes you more comfortable. Who would you like me to sound like? He said, oh, I don't know, Bob Hope. And I said, hey, how about that Rob Zombie? Isn't he something? House of a Thousand Corpses. Man, I played to a few of those in vaudeville. And the Devil's Rejects, it sounds like my agents at William Morris. So we got along well, but it became time for. So I was pleased that Cold Iron said, no, we still want to do this. And they were still giving me an annual option uh, fee, which was very welcome. And uh, I'm not going to be koi or, or any freshwater fish for that matter. Uh, there's only certain things I can divulge uh, because it hasn't been officially announced. But I will say that. Uh, I'm the co-writer of the screenplay, and we have a director, and we have two of the three main characters cast. And once we get the third puzzle piece in place, that may well result in a swift pre-production and production. We're actually hoping to film it by the end of the year. But it is still, you know, when the news came out that Rob wasn't attached to it, people took that to me and it's dead in the water. You know, he had other non-horror projects and this like the uh, one about hockey and this is just like that and it's gone. And so it's like, no, Rob isn't part of it, but it is still very much alive. And it has continued to be a smooth process. I was afraid that without Rob sort of as my big brother going to bat for me with the suits, you know, the classic situation. Even though <laughs> I lived it, I wrote the book, and I wrote the script, that's still not enough in Hollywood for me to have any kind of clout apart from saying, mm -hmm. no, you can't have it. Uh, I don't want your money. I would rather mm -hmm. have my pride intact and not pay the rent. So I was pleased that even after Rob was gone, there was still a lot of respect for my story, uh, not tarting it up, not turning it into something it never was. Mm -hmm. um, I remember before, before Rob had optioned it, uh, a friend of mine put me in touch with a director who was interested in doing a film version of it. So we had lunch. And he said, well, the first thing we have to figure out is whose point of view is it going to be told from? And I thought, uh-oh, because I'd always seen it as Steve being the one people would relate to with this aging legend and this ambitious younger woman. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's not a biography of Groucho any more than Ed Wood was a biography of Bela Lugosi. You know, it was Lugosi in his final years and then this young guy. So likewise, the film version of Raised Eyebrows is only on the years that I was a part of the household. So here's this guy saying we have to figure out whose point of view it's from. Hey, maybe maybe what we should do is have it told from the point of view of the old Groucho 
But the young Groucho is imprisoned in his head and he's viewing all. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm prepared to make compromises because I know how things do and don't get done in Hollywood. And you can't be this precious writer saying, oh, no, that took place in the kitchen, not the dinette area. So you've destroyed my work. You've ruined it. You know, so I was prepared to be open-minded, but already the ships had diverged before they'd left the dock. And I ended up, it was too bad because he was raring to go and I didn't have any other offers, but I wanted to stay true to the book. And I thought if we're this far apart on the premise, oh dear, what a roller coaster I'd handcuff myself to. Mm -hmm. So, and I remember the friend that put us in touch said, I can't believe you would have turned him down without something, without another offer, because that's just not done. You're you're a, an idiot for doing that. And I said, my priorities are not get a deal. My priorities are do justice to my story, because I get one shot at this. And mm -hmm. it isn't a book, you know, on the history of aircraft carriers or Wild Bill Hickok or something. It's my something I lived and experienced. And so I'm much closer to it than if it were just some novel I wrote that someone optioned. So, uh, you know, it has been a very long and winding road, which the Beatles stole mm -hmm. that from me. And, <laughs> and we're still not at the end of it, but we are making great progress. And I was very pleased and frankly surprised that uh, late last year, rather than giving me the, my annual option money, which was always welcome, the production company hauled off and paid me the complete amount for the full book rights and for my portion of the script. And that also points in the direction of a serious desire to get this made and out because they would not have thrown that kind of money at me when they could have just given me another option fee. So it is moving forward. It is a slow process of people's schedules, other commitments they have. Or do you want to do this role? Is it, you know, how, how does that fit in with other projects you have going on? But once mm -hmm. we have the three puzzle pieces, that should smooth the way. But I know better than to say, you know, I was talking, I was doing a podcast yesterday and the guy said, so when, when will the film be out? And I said, well, of course, first we have to shoot it. <laughs> uh, there's that technicality. So that is the status of it. And I am pleased with how it's going. And yes, there've been compromises in the script, but I always understood that, you know, I saw Aaron Sorkin speaking at a uh, screening of his film on Steve Jobs. It was a Writers Guild screening, and he did a Q&A. And he said the difference between a documentary and a film based on real events is the difference between a photograph and a painting. And I thought, mm. ooh, I'm going to steal that when people ask me about raised eyebrows. But I don't steal it. I credit Aaron Sorkin because <laughs> that was one of the things I learned from Groucho was unless you're painfully insecure, please credit the person who coined the phrase. Don't just take it as your own. And I've tried to do that as often as possible. That is the short answer to your question. 
Let me ask you, are you still looking at this as being a theatrical release or might it be something for a streaming service? Uh, we're intending it to be theatrical, although obviously the lines have really blurred even before the pandemic. Um, and when, you know, all the theaters were locked, it was obvious that with Netflix and Amazon and other platforms and, mm-hmm. and floor mats, it's sort of like with my book when people, they'll say, I hope you don't mind, but I borrowed a friend's copy or I got it at the library. And it's like, I don't care about getting those few dollars. I'm, I would like you to read it if it's of interest and hopefully you'll enjoy it. Although there's no guarantee of that, you know, I'm not against the film making money, but however it gets seen, if someone ends up watching it in their living room, instead of stepping on black juji fruits on the theater floor and getting their heels stuck in Coke syrup. Okay. It's a matter of seeing it, not mm-hmm. where, but yes, theatrical is our preference by L'Oreal. Okay, one more thing about the film before yeah. we move into our questions. Yeah. As soon as this uh, was first talked about several years ago, people started inundating you with uh, casting choices, not only for Groucho, but for Aaron and even yourself. Yes. Any of those uh, amuse you that you want to share with us? Well, the answer I tended to give for Groucho was that it would be Morgan Freeman and Whiteface, because I felt that that would be inclusive and in keeping with uh, being open-minded about casting choices and that no one could be remotely offended by that. Well, Mm -hmm. Here's some name dropping, which was going to be inevitable. So, you know, put on your slickers and boots. Um, I was on the set of Cafe Society at Woody Allen's invitation. I spent a few Mm -hmm. days watching him work, which was remarkable. And really the first thing that happened when I showed up on the set, he said, what's going on with your movie? And I said, (laughs) we're trying. And then this is already several years ago. And I said, well, we're working on it. And and then we started talking about casting. And he mentioned he mentioned Dustin Hoffman for Groucho. And I said, I don't know if I'd ever believe I wasn't watching Dustin Hoffman. And he said, well, I believed him as Lenny, which I thought was an interesting point. And then he said. And and you, nobody knows what you look like. You could get Orlando Bloom to play you. Um, it's not going to be Orlando Bloom, who is now much older than he would have been even back then. And as a matter of fact, I, I recently I recently got a letter from Woody that said, when I have trouble falling asleep, I try to cast your movie. He runs <laughs> through different actors and actresses. And so... Anyway, all right, so there's that then. And if you think of other film-related questions, the fact that mm-hmm. we have moved on to another topic does not in and of itself preclude asking it. My brain can figure it out. Yeah. So just so you understand, these questions are from our listeners, so don't kill the messenger. I wish <laughs> Noah and Matthew would try to keep the noise down. Okay. Well, we're going to do this round robin style. So the first question is going to go to Noah. All right. All right. Hello, Noah. Um, Good to hear your voice, Steve, as well as see your face. Likewise, I'm sure. Right. This uh, this is a question asked by Marx Brothers Council member Scott Saturni. Ah, Scott Saturni. I never was sure how to pronounce his name. We were just talking about that. I assume he knows how to pronounce it, but he's keeping it to himself. 
It's a portmanteau of his wife's name, which was Nye, and his own name, which was Sater. And when they got married, they... Pronounce portmanteau. I can't pronounce his last name. Sater. <laughs> Sater's were, Sater the, were the priapic, sexually obsessed wood <laughs> creatures in Greek mythology. Uh, that's that's exactly right. About that instead of his question. All right. <laughs> and, and of course, George Kaufman said satyrs are what close on Saturday night. All right. <laughs> well, Scott, Scott Portmanteau asks, yes. if now, knowing what you know now and from your today's perspective, when you look back on your years with Groucho, is there anything you wish you had done differently? That's an interesting question that I won't necessarily have an interesting answer for. I don't think so. I think I was one lucky bastard. Uh, One of my favorite compliments that I get to this day is people saying, I hate you. Um, Because they're Marx Brothers fans. And it's like I say, I would hate me too if I had heard about someone that did this and I was as obsessive a Groucho fan as I was. But I was lucky enough that it that I was me. I know that there are some who feel like, why didn't you get rid of Aaron? Why didn't you stop her? Uh, how could you just continue there? It's a little bit like I got to know Joe Esposito, who was the head of Elvis's Memphis Mafia. Great guy, by the way. Great integrity. And he mm-hmm. got a lot of crap from people saying, why didn't you stop Elvis from the drugs and from overindulging? You were there. You could have done something. And it's a real balancing act, you know, because if you're just a constant irritant, then Presley would have fired people saying, do you really want to take that pill? Do you really want to eat that sandwich? And I had no power in the house to vanquish Aaron and ride to the rescue of Groucho. And all I could do was the best I could looking out for him and trying to remain inside the house and on Aaron's good side, which, you know, assuming she had one and that that she had many sides, she was quite the human dodecagon. So it would have been nice if, if she hadn't been around, but then I owe her having gotten the job. So again, it's a, it's a blurry picture, but uh, I, I can't think of, you know, I don't really have regrets about it. It was an astonishing ride. It, it never got dull. It was, uh, you know, intermittently sad and stressful, but you know, as Dorothy says at the end of Oz, most of it was wonderful or beautiful or whatever she said. Hope that's adequate. Well, Scott Sater and I will let us know if he's satisfied All with right. that answer. Well, fine. I'll be out of here by then. <laughs> Matthew? Okay. This. Oh, hello, Steve, by the way. What, what, you can drop the phony accent. We know you're from Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> this one comes from Aaron Nugent. Uh, and he says, are you still in contact with other staff from Groucho's house? And what did they think of your book? Oh, a two-parter. Uh, yes. Oh, I guess I have to talk about who that. I am still very much in touch with Henry Golas, who also worked in the house in the last years, and John Tefteller. And um, I haven't talked to him in a long time, but 
but uh, I've been in touch with Andy Marks in recent years. Sadly, there aren't that many people left to be in touch with. Uh, what they thought of it. It's, it was interesting. I, I dealt with this in the, uh, in the expanded version of my book. And I added that afterward chapter, catching people up on the, you know, dramatis personae of the hardcover book. And it was, what was, what was interesting was I heard from people, some of the people I wrote about who said, you have a jaw-dropping ability to remember details from years ago. I don't know how you remembered all that. Everything you said is true, except what you said about me. Very interesting from an ego standpoint. Uh, Miriam uh, uh, disagreed with me that she was at the hands of an abusive couple in those years, although Henry, who was even in closer touch with Miriam, said... It was spot on and even worse than I had delineated in the book. So I think that was sort of the revisionist history of a recovered substance abuser who was forgiving and not really so much about accuracy. Uh, And I also talked about Bud Court in the afterward chapter and, and that he had threatened to sue me. And then when I got a letter from his attorney, I called the publisher and i was scared because no one had ever threatened to sue me i'd never gotten a stern letter from an attorney before and i called the publisher of the this was back when the hardcover came out and i read him the letter you know you know you recall the book and this is causing damage to my client and all this stuff mm-hmm. and the publisher started laughing and i said quay what are you laughing at and he said the attorney who signed that letter works for the same company as the attorney who vetted your manuscript ahead of time and who is, in fact, a partner and the boss of the attorney that sent you the outrage letter. So hmm. luckily, nothing came of it. And I, I did tell Bud that I would at least say his his uh, memory of circumstances differed from mine. Uh, so I added that to the afterword, which arguably held him up to more ridicule by saying, can you believe he was threatening to sue me for saying that he had taken advantage of Groucho's hospitality in 1975? Hmm. And also the publisher said he would have to prove that my book was keeping him from earning a living. Uh, you know, that as if, you know, Spielberg would testify, I was going to cast him in the lead in this film. And then I read a book about Groucho Marx that said he <laughs> had a party and he invited people over and didn't tell, well, I can't, there's no room in my film for someone like that. But, you know, I thought it was pretty mild stuff and I liked Bud and I liked Harold yeah. and Maude and, and uh, I didn't have any run-ins with him or anything, but he was, you know, he was very hurt that uh, I said a lot of the same things that Hector had said in his biography of Groucho. Also in the afterward, I talk about a lengthy conversation I had with Melinda, who is a precinct not often heard from. And she had said, you know, I wish I'd read the book when it came out. You would have saved me years of therapy. And now the universe is a little more aligned because of you. And she gave it to her 
to Andy's brother, Stephen Marks. She mm-hmm. sent the copy to him basically saying, read this. This is a great book. And that was gratifying to hear from Groucho's daughter. And uh, Nat Perrin thought I did a terrific job. So the feedback has been, you know, over. There are, of course, the people who don't want to hear about people being human and weak and getting older and want to only think about Groucho with a grease paint mustache spinning around on, hmm. on stage and on film. And I understand that, but that was not my experience. And uh, I didn't set out to make him a, a, a figure of pity. Uh, a pathetic figure because that that wasn't the case but i also wasn't going to continue the misconception that good old groucho at 85 just as sharp as ever um mm-hmm. i think lynn Earhart or charlotte chandler tended to have paint a rosier picture of the of groucho's final years than than was really the case uh and it would have been nice if it had been as frothy as she portrayed it but i tried to as i say i just tried to lay out the facts as i saw them without skewing it one way or the other without making myself some heroic figure you know the groucho on his deathbed saying i you know you're the son i never had i could have made up a bunch of stuff but i thought the truth was interesting enough and uh so some people you know are saddened or upset by you know reading that their hero was vulnerable but imagine for me getting close to him after years of worshiping him and watching the gradual fade out plus putting up with Aaron's mercurial temperament okay did i say anything close to what you were asking yeah. about <laughs> I think we touched on it, yeah. All right. So I'm going to cross off my question about whether Bud Cord ever learned how to use a mailbox. Okay. Um, this is from... He, oh, he used his attorney to send me the letter, so maybe not. <laughs> so this is from Neil Eloy. Eloy? The Eloy were the people in the time machine that the Morlocks <laughs> raised for food. I think that's what he was named after. So we have the satyrs who were the priapic, sexually obsessed Wood, wooded woodland creatures of Greek mythology and the Eloi, the mindless cows that uh, the Morlocks, they dragged it into the mountain so as they could. All right, never mind, go on. <laughs> you add them all up and you get the Marx Brothers Council. That's <laughs> yeah. it. Well, this is, this is better than Ancestry.com. Much better, so. <laughs> and much um, more reliable like than that stupid DNA thing. Neil wants to know, and I apologize if you address this in the book. It's been a long time for, sure. for some of us. Um, did Groucho have a favorite comic in the 1970s? Yes. He was fond of Woody Allen, and he was fond of Dick Cavett. Mm-hmm. And what was cool was that when Groucho discovered a person, a book, a movie – an author, a talent, a columnist, he would share that with his peers because he figured if I like them, they might too. So he really turned on a lot of his pals at the Hillcrest Country Club to Woody Allen back in his early stand-up days because Mm -hmm. it's so easy with oldsters to get into that 
you know, these kids today, they don't know what's funny and they don't know who we are and uh, it's nothing but dirty language and blah, blah, blah. And you, you sort of need someone to say that may be the case with a lot of them, but this guy's worth checking out. Of course, there wasn't YouTube then, but I'm sure Groucho would have said, here's the link to his YouTube footage. You should watch it. It's a funny picture. So uh, Woody Allen and Dick Cavett were the names that he tended to rattle off. He enjoyed watching right. All in the Family. He didn't watch the Mary Tyler Moore show because he said she, was, she wasn't his cup of tea. People often ask me about MASH because the Alan Alda character sounds and acts a lot like Groucho. If he did watch it, I'm unaware that he did. So I don't have an informed opinion on that. But uh, those were the... I was wondering about Mel Brooks. Was was Groucho a fan of Mel's? Uh, tomorrow is Mel Brooks' 95th birthday, I think. Still standing. Mm -hmm. Astonishing. Anyway, mm -hmm. he did enjoy... Mel Brooks. I know he had recently seen Blazing Saddles when Animal Crackers re-premiered because he and mm -hmm. Carl Reiner was sitting behind me at the UA Westwood. Mm -hmm. And Reiner said, did you see Mel's uh, movie? And Groucho said, yeah, it was very funny. That scene around the campfire. And uh, mm -hmm. Reiner said, well, uh, that's what happens when you when you drink coffee and eat beans. And Groucho said, you fart. And Reiner said, that's right, Groucho. So, yes, he enjoyed Blazing Saddles. And I think he enjoyed Mel Brooks in general, sure. And a hush fell over the crowd that had to be edited out later. I suddenly realized it was my turn here. Oh. Uh, Are you so spellbound by my narrative that you've lost? Exactly. That? All right. Yes, we just reviewed Love Happy. You were giving me the whammy. You were hypnotizing me. Like, I'm proud uh, to say I don't get the reference because it has been decades since I've put myself through watching it. You're going to want to keep it that way. I don't even own a copy of it. Me neither. And I still lead a remarkably normal, fulfilling life. How is that possible? <laughs> they only made about a dozen movies. How can you not have them all? I don't. Just goes to show you, kids out there, you don't need to own a copy of Love Happy to be complete. Uh, however, you may want to know, as Dale Sherman does, um, he asks, uh, Steve, you have had uh, a life and career involving lots of interesting projects and interactions with lots of interesting people. Uh, have you ever thought about or considered uh, writing a, a memoir about your life since the years with Groucho? Um, thank you for that. You're not the first to mention that. Uh, I have crossed paths with a number of, uh, interesting people, either in person or a correspondence, uh, just somehow connecting with them for varying lengths of time. Um, and I suppose I could write something about my encounters with other celebrities. Uh, Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly and uh, Woody Allen and Dick Cavett and Catherine Hepburn and, uh, and my correspondence with the now reviled Dr. Seuss, that horrible racist man that must be banned from the bookshelves. Um, Hirsch, Al Hirschfeld, 
letters and had dinner at his house with with Dietrich's daughter and with Jerome Kotorov, the playwright. And um, I don't know, there's something in my mind makes me think that people will see it as a sort of also ran, you know, the Groucho book, it had such a solid central hub for the other celebrities to revolve around. Cause I get into George Burns and hope and Mae West and Steve Allen and like that. In the case of uh, the other stuff, I, I suppose I could still weave it into a narrative and, and people might find it. I haven't ruled it out. It's not at the top of my list of priorities, but it's it's a valid idea that, that there's no real good argument against. How's that for a diplomatic answer? If Dale Sherman's happy, I'm happy. <laughs> we won't know. Okay, well, here's a short, snappy, and straightforward one yes. from Dennis Sullivan. And he says, what was the funniest thing that Groucho ever said in your presence? You'd think I would have a ready answer for that, wouldn't you? It is, as someone said, like picking snowflakes out of a blizzard. Because as old and creaky as he got, the mechanism that made him Groucho remained Groucho. He he was particularly funny when inadequate reporters would come by to interview him who hadn't done any research and were just assigned to go to his house. You can tell the difference between people who are really fans. I've run into it to some degree in promoting my book because <clears throat> I remember when the first uh, printing came out in 96, the PR guy for the publisher would just, he'd say, well, at 4.30 in the morning, you'll get a call from this guy who hosts a sh- drive bu- drive time show in Nashville. And I would just, you know, set my alarm and answer these questions. And, you know, you got the whole spectrum of people who were big Marx Brothers fans or who had seen a couple movies or who sort of knew who they were. One that stands out, however, and I swear he wasn't kidding, was the guy who said, which was the brother who played the harp? (laughs) And I wanted to say as nice as I could, take a wild guess, fuckface. But (laughs) cooler heads prevailed, and I answered, in fact, ironically, it was Harpo Marx who played the harp. Um, So Groucho didn't have much tolerance for reporters who asked him obvious questions but that often turned into funny things at their expense that somehow didn't make it into their article uh and this one guy i remember this one guy said i put this in the book but it stands out he said uh, how has making movies changed since the days when you and your brothers were making movies and groucho said they didn't used to have toilets near the sound stages (laughs) and And he said, but all that's changed now. And the guy said, really? How so? And Groucho just looked at him and said, people don't piss anymore. (laughs) How do you think they've changed? They now do have toilets near the sound stage. They do it on screen now. Yeah. So anyway, that'll have to do. That that doesn't constitute the funniest because I really can't can't do that. But... uh, they were they were much more often 
than someone might think seeing how how old and slow he had become but that reflexive mechanism of you know handing him a straight line and having him twisted and hand it back was was hmm. remain there to the end really okay well i got one from your old buddy john tefteller who says ask him to talk a bit about Groucho's personal collection and what he knows about what became of it when Bank of America had say over it. I, you know, I don't know what, what became of a lot of that stuff because I wasn't, I didn't have any authority after Groucho died. I mean, in the final months I was in charge of the household on weekends. Henry Golas was in charge during the week. And so I really had probably the highest priority job I ever had there was acting as a referee between the warring Fleming and Arthur factions. And But once Groucho died, there wasn't anyone there that was going to fill me in on things. Um, in the book, I talk about when the, the weekend that Groucho died and Betty Comden called and said, is Aaron there? And I said, no. And she said, is Arthur there? And I said, no. And she said, I don't know who to console. And I guess I said, I guess we should console ourselves. Um, and so, and I had sort of, you know, the Arthur people always saw me as one of those Aaron people. So they never fully trusted me. And then Aaron Uh, got to read what my three days of deposition had to say about her during the conservatorship. And she, you know, like Trump, she expected complete loyalty and no negative words spoken about her, or she would be furious. It didn't go both ways as with Trump. Uh, But she was of course furious to hear the things that I had to say in my sworn testimony. And again, I didn't go out of my way to slam her, but simply retelling the events as they transpired was, was damning enough. So, and of course the night at Groucho's house that she was on the phone to a friend saying, fucking servants are treating me like a cockroach. It's very flattering. <laughs> Obviously a, a reference to, uh, Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis when Gregor Samsa wakes up. And so it was actually a literary compliment. But I digress, and much more often than I should. Um, What was I talking about? I don't even remember. John Tefteller asking about the personal question. uh, I don't know what became of the films or a lot of the things in the house uh, after he died, he didn't have any kind of uh, comprehensive collection. He mostly had he had home movies, and he had prints of things that I think after he did a show, they would give him. You know, he had a copy of one of the Hollywood palaces, and he had a copy of Night in Casablanca. I think he had a copy of Animal Crackers, but it wasn't. You know, he didn't collect on himself, so it wasn't that important. And, you know, it has saddened me that I've seen so many things I recognize from the house that end up being auctioned off for money because obviously I had the chance to swipe them when I was there but could never have lived with myself ripping off a dying man by taking some of his personal effects. And, in fact, I... One of my jobs was to organize his memorabilia for donation to the Smithsonian. So I felt that all of these things 
had their place and were part of, quote, the collection. And years later, someone did furnish me with a printout of what was in the Smithsonian collection of Groucho stuff. And it was cool to see a lot of the things that I remember and, and just extraneous things like notes that I had jotted down or phone numbers or something that they somehow decide. Oh, the, so that's in the Smithsonian. But then I see that like his wire rim glasses are up for grabs at Heritage. And uh, it just it saddens me because I feel like they belong where others can appreciate them. So I there's a. Um, I remember being in a, a bookstore in Hollywood maybe eight years after Groucho died, and they had a copy of uh, the Paris Reviews interviews, and, and this was the one that had Perelman, S.J. Perelman interview. And I opened it up, and it had said, uh, for Groucho with love, Dick Cavett. And I remembered that from Groucho's bookshelf. And I said to the seller, how did, where'd you get this? And he said, oh, after Groucho died, they had like a garage sale and they had a lot of stuff for sale at rock bottom prices. It was the first I'd heard of it. No one, I would like to have had a few mementos, uh, you know, apart from the books and photos he gave me. But uh, so I don't know what happened to his films. I don't know, you know, the one that I really wanted to see was the home movie, the label on it said, Marx Brothers and Harry Ruby riding horses in Central Park. And it was like 1928. And, but we tried to thread the projector and it was so brittle and the sprocket holes were breaking. And we thought we, it isn't worth trying to push this through the machine and then destroy it. And obviously with technology now that could be scanned or whatever they do with fragile stuff. Uh, I don't know where that is. I don't. I haven't heard from anyone who said, "Oh, yeah, I saw that, and it was really cool." Um, I don't know if that's just going to show up in an auction at some point, or if it is in the Smithsonian and I overlooked it on the printout. But anyway, John, I don't know what happened to those things, uh, and I'm sorry that it was sort of chaotic after Groucho died. Well, I'd like to jump the queue here because I've got uh -oh. two questions actually that 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 flow very naturally oh. from that. Uh, firstly, we've got Arnie Bernstein or possibly Bernstein, and he wondered, do you know whatever happened to the medal Groucho received from the French Ordre des Arts et des Lettres? I heard years ago it showed up in a storage locker somewhere and then was sold on eBay. If so, a strange fate for something Groucho was so intensely proud of. Yes. And Josh Chambers says, from photos in all the various marks compendia, it's obvious Groucho was proud of his past achievements and had a lot on display, did he ever share with Steve what he valued as his most treasured piece of career memorabilia? So the French medal and his most treasured piece I have of a very accurate answer on the French medal and a very disappointing one for the second one. So we'll get the second one out of the way. There was no single item that he was proudest of, but when he would take people on tours of his trophy table and walls, you could hear the pride as he would say, there's a letter from Truman. There's me with Ty Cobb. Now, there's an award I got. Now, here's the key to Beverly Hills, which is worthless. Here's, you know, and he would, there wasn't like this one thing that he said, I got to show you this thing. 
Um, it was really just looking back over a lifetime of experience. You know, there were photos on the walls of the brothers out of makeup and vaudeville and family photos, of course. Uh, but there wasn't one single item. The Again, I don't know why Groucho's medal had been in a storage locker. Um, who put it there? Why wasn't that even one of the things sold in the garage sale where the other books were sold? Groucho was very proud of that medal. Um, and he would say, I got one and Chaplin got one. By, by now, many other people have gotten it. But at the time, they were the only two comedians or film people who had gotten it. Anyway, and I saw it on eBay. And this was when Rob was attached to be the director. And I pointed it out to him that, you know, this was it, clearly. And, uh, and Rob bought it and has it. Ah. And even though he isn't going to be directing the film, he's still a huge lifelong Marx Brothers fan. And so I'm sure he still appreciates having something that belonged to Groucho. So that is that at least I know what happened to that. <clears throat> but the degree to which other stuff was scattered to the four winds is frustrating and, and saddens me as someone also some, I'm someone who tends to be kind of organized. This goes here. That should be put with these, you know, and the idea that some things went here and some went there and then a storage locker, you know, I could have just imagined if I was watching, what does that show? Storage wars where they bid against each other and then rummage through old clothes and broken toys. And then there's this Groucho metal and the, the guy takes it to an expert who says, oh, this is probably worth thousands of dollars. And I would be screaming at my TV set and frightening my cat. I think Noah's do. Ah, long since due. Uh, Steve, you are known as a voice artist and impressionist. You're known for having a great ear. Um, a lot of people don't realize you have another one just like it on the other side of your head, too. Yes. It, so I can't do the Van Gogh impression. <laughs> That's the one out of your, out of your range. But uh, one Mr. Marty Eisenberg would like to know if you ever performed any of your spot-on impressions in front of the subjects themselves. I tend not to because I think it would be awkward for both of us. I remember reading in Cavett's book, uh, the first one called, of all things, Cavett. And he talked about meeting up with Stan Laurel in the early 60s when Cavett was out here working as a writer and uh, was astonished to see that Stan Laurel's address was in the phone book. And he called up and went over and Laurel told him something like, I make myself available to the fans. One of them came over here and he talked like me the whole time and I didn't know where to look. And I could understand that. Uh, it's like, also, there's that feeling of the person thinking, that's not what I sound like. Is that what you think I sound like? So I haven't done that. Although I suspect because I've done it in a number of places, Cavett has probably heard my Cavett impression. He hasn't said anything about it, but I noticed in the course of recording this, I got an email notification from Cavett about something else. So we're still on good terms. So he, he either thought it was okay or didn't think it was worth complaining about. But no, I don't. It's 
weird. And I find it weird when someone says, yeah, I did it in front of him. And, and it's like, why would you put yourself and them through that awkwardness? So there's that answer. It's easier to do dead people because there's little chance that you're going to run into, you know, Raymond Burr or Burgess Meredith or uh, William Frawley, you know. Wait, William Frawley's dead? What? Sorry. Uh, what we've been bummer. protecting you from Spoiler that. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Oh, man. Jimmy Mack wants to know if there's a particular book that Groucho liked to read over and over again or, or talk about. No, he did. He had a lot of great books, and he turned me on to so many great writers, the whole Algonquin Roundtable set. He said, you can borrow any of my books. Just make sure you bring them back. And, and of course, they were signed, Bob Benchley and George Kaufman. And, and he would, from time to time, take down old volumes and uh, go back to his bed and and hmm. open them up and start reading. He liked rereading James Thurber's books. He liked rereading Benchley's books. Uh, you know, the classic humorist. And, and, of course, the other, you know, these were people that he knew personally. That was so strange for me to realize that when he talks about W.C. Fields or George Gershwin, he's remembering mm -hmm. them in three dimensions in color in a living room. And I'm thinking of them, you know, in books or black and white footage or something. But, yeah, he, he liked to reread the comic pieces of the great and, and Perelman uh, mm -hmm. as well. I've always been curious about his opinion of Arthur's work, uh, particularly the uh, Martin and Lewis biography. That came out right around the time you were there, right? Yeah, he was he was upset about an interview Arthur gave because Arthur said unflattering things about Aaron Fleming. Gosh, how could that have happened? And Groucho was very mm -hmm. defensive about that. I don't remember him commenting about the Martin and Lewis book. I think he thought of his son as a decent writer. I don't think he thought of him as a brilliant writer with a distinctive voice. And I don't think he thought he was lousy. I just think he was just sort of, and, and that's probably a fair evaluation. You know, I don't mm -hmm. think Arthur inherited his father's brilliance, but he certainly had skills and did all right with them. This one's from Dan Trudeau, and he says, given the years that have now passed since you first wrote the book, has your perspective on any of the events you witnessed or any of the people you interacted with changed over the passage of time? That's an interesting question. Uh, you would think that with whatever wisdom I would be alleged to have acquired in the ensuing years, I might reflect on how I viewed relationships or people and see if I've judged them harshly or or not harshly enough. Um, and I don't think so. I think that my uh, mental impressions of the people that I encountered there remain as I, as I wrote about them. And I haven't really... You know, I'm, even though I'm more familiar now with what happens in elder abuse or people that have emotional or psychological problems or chemical dependencies, it doesn't really, it doesn't make me more forgiving or more judgmental in any way. Um, you know, my late, my late wife used to say when, when there'd be like 
a serial killer who it turned out had been horribly beaten as a child, she would say, it may help explain his behavior, but it doesn't excuse it. And that's how I feel. Well, that's how I feel about Aaron. You know, we can have compassion for the problems she had, and it would might make sense given the problems she was dealing with that she would have these this behavior. But that doesn't make it okay. It just maybe helps explain some of it. So, so no, there, my opinions haven't really shifted. This question comes from Jim Engel. Jim wants to know, did Groucho genuinely like any of the rock stars and then contemporary actors he fraternized and photo-opped with during the Aaron era? Jim writes, my impression has always been that she used him as bait for her own desire to meet and hang out with celebrities. Well, those aren't mutually exclusive elements. Aaron did use them as bait for her own ambitions, but Groucho did enjoy the company of some of them. I mean, he he enjoyed having Bud Court around. He got a kick out of Alice Cooper and Elton John personally, but he didn't. I mean, he hated rock music. His taste ran to Gilbert and Sullivan. And then, of course, all the Tin Pan Alley, Gershwin, Berlin, Porter, Kern, Rogers and Hart, that sort of thing. Calmer and Ruby, of course. So he never developed a like, you know, Melinda was into rock and roll in the 60s because she was the right age for that. But, you know, Groucho, as many people in his generation felt that it was pretty much noise and screaming. I'm wondering whether any of these performers ever said to Groucho, oh, you got to come to see one of my shows. I think they coaxed him to go see an Alice Cooper show. And Groucho said something like, he's bringing back vaudeville or he, he may single-handedly revive vaudeville or something like that. But I can't believe that he actually enjoyed the music so much as the spectacle, the theatrics, and then, you know, the personalities of the people. But when, you know, when you have the Elliot Gould and Sally Kellerman and Bud and people like that, th- those were people that Aaron had cultivated. I don't think they would otherwise have come into Groucho's circle, but that didn't mean that he didn't like them, but he's not going to listen to Alice Cooper records. Didn't Andy Marks talk about him seeing Elton John in concert? Am am I remembering that wrong? He may have. And he thought it was funny that he had two first names, so he was going to call him John Elton. I I wasn't there at the time, so I don't know, but I trust Andy's recollection. Kerr Lockhart, I want to know, and you're going to have to get on your psychoanalyst hat for this one. Uh-oh. Did Groucho ever get tired of carrying around his persona uh, and just as soon not bother to insult people just to please them? Well, I think it's a persona to some degree, and then the rest of it is that's just how he was. That wasn't like... Foster Brooks having a drunk act and then being sober Mm. in real life. You know, he was called Groucho for a reason, and it wasn't because of a grouch bag. (laughs) Uh, He, uh, you know, you know the story about about Minnie referring to him as Der Dunkel, the dark one, because, you know, he could be cynical and serious and depressive and, and would be genuinely irritated by various things. 
the problem the problem he had was people who he would insult and they'd say oh his, it's sort of like an autograph it's like wow groucho insulted me you know that he could be at a restaurant and say you know the soup tastes like dishwater oh wait till i tell the chef that you insulted the soup this will be wonderful that really was how he was you know i remember hector arcy telling me that uh, a friend of his had seen Greta Garbo walking in the streets of Manhattan. And so the guy pulled out a piece of paper and a pen and ran up to her and said, Miss Garbo, would you, would you give me your autograph? And she said, don't clutter your life with useless pieces of paper. And the guy thought that's every bit as good as if she had given me her autograph because that's so Garbo-esque of her to do that. And now he has that story that goes with it. So was that, was that anything close to the question? Yes, absolutely. I go off on these tangents and can't find my way back without leaving breadcrumbs. (laughs) So Matthew. Okay. Well, here's one that reads to me like a very simple yes, no one, but it may, there may be some backstory here that I'm not aware of. So anyway, it comes from Karen Owen and she says, I'll ask the same question I asked when Steve was on Stu's show. Have you found the Time magazine issue with Marx Brothers cover? Well, there's two things. There's finding it and having it. Yes, I write in in the in the book about seeing the bound copies from 1932 at the UCLA Research Library and coveting the Marx Brothers cover from 32 and then thinking, no, if I take it, then it's gone and I jip other people out of it. Apologies to all the gypsies who are listening that I use the phrase jip, which I understand is inappropriate. And when someone tells me something's inappropriate, I will, of course, use it twice as much. And then before I graduated, going back to look at it again, and someone had sliced out the cover. And I thought, you know, I was had mixed feelings. One was, should I have taken it? And the other was, see, this is what happens when someone takes it. You get disappointed. and all. So I have seen it floating through eBay, usually for just more money than I'm interested in. And I think at this late date, I'm just not that interested in, in, really writing a big check for it. I would still like to have a copy, but it's not a burning, you know, it's like if only I had that, then the jigsaw puzzle would be complete. So yes, I've seen them numerous times, but they, they taunt me and, and laugh at me, but uh, I never acquired one or haven't yet. I'll say. Here's a nice question from Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe asks, uh, if you recall any occasions when you made Groucho laugh. Mike Rowe is a friend of mine. He's not the Mike Rowe on TV, but he's a very good... The Odd Jobs... uh, No, that's not him. This guy is a writer... That's another Rowe. ...writer-producer who just wrote a very funny memoir called It's a Funny Thing, How the Professional Comedy Business Made Me Fat and Bald. And I edited it... uh, (laughs) For him, and he's a great guy. Well, there was a time when I brought Groucho's bathrobe to him at the hospital, and I said, Well, I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. And he said to the nurse, A comedian. But there was another time when I guess it was after one of his birthdays, and there was a bunch of empty boxes in his bedroom. 
And I stacked them on top of each other because I only wanted to make one trip taking them out instead of doing the smart thing, which would have been taking a couple at a time. I ended up with this teetering stack of empty boxes. And it's like I had to zig and zag to keep it from toppling. As a, and I glanced over and Groucho was cracking up watching me juggling these boxes uh, out of his bedroom. So it wasn't from something I said. It was physical comedy, but it was born of the reality that it was hard to balance them. And then, of course, I have the distinction of having been called a genius by Groucho Marx. Um, it's only because I was the only one in the household who knew how to change the needle on a stereo. But the fact remains, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I challenge any of you, including both of your listeners, to make the same claim that Groucho Marx ever said you're a genius, even if it was facetious and stereo-centered. <laughs> well, I got a question from um, me, actually. Really? So, Is it the same you as you or a different you? The, or it might be somebody impersonating me. When it came to making an appearance either on a TV show or live, do you recall Aaron and Groucho ever disagreeing on whether he should do it or what he should do? Um, if they did, I wasn't privy to that. But he tended, for better or for worse, to trust her judgment. So when she would line something up, it was basically just a matter of informing him we're going to, you know, you're going to do the Merv Griffin show or we're going to go to this party or something like that. And he tended to go along. It was, you know, it wasn't worth quibbling over. And he did enjoy the audience. He enjoyed the spotlight. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that, that story about his non-appearance on um, Welcome Back, Cotter. And the, uh, there are a couple of photos that show that he did mm -hmm. show up. And, I, you know, people who said mm -hmm. it, it's completely apocryphal, it isn't true, nor is it true that they filmed him. And that ju it's just fell through with Aaron having some shit fit and storming out with Groucho. And he wasn't going to say, well, I'm going to stay here and do the thing. He, he would leave with her. You know, she did a lot to harm his reputation and image because as is the case with a lot of people associated with powerful people they take on it's like i don't think you realize who you're dealing with and it's like mm -hmm. yes i'm dealing with the manager for the guy that we want on the show but for the most part what she said went and if she decided you know we're just not going to do this he was going to be part of some ralph nader charity thing in washington mm -hmm. dc and his name had been attached to the publicity and they had raised money and for ticket sales and all this. And then because they had to change the venue, Aaron took it as a personal insult. You said it was going to be here and instead it's going to be there. And so Groucho isn't interested in appearing and she stood them up. She, I mean, she caused Groucho to stand them up, which reflected poorly on him. You know, they thought he wasn't a man of his word when in fact he was just sort of, you know, in the clutches of Aaron's decision-making and control. 
Anthony Skibelli or Shibelli says, It's been years since I read the book, but I would be curious to hear more about Groucho's lunch with George Burns. I know that Burns and Groucho didn't always get along, but I wonder how much of that is exaggerated. They seem to get along pretty well in the story in the book. They did. They seemed to get along pretty well. And uh, I think there were another couple of occasions that he came over and things were fine. Uh, likewise, when Perelman came over, there was, you know, there was, they were supposed to be long time rivals. But if you didn't know that ahead of time, it was quite smooth. Burns was great. And, you know, for the people who've read the book recently, this will be a bit of a retread. But since he asked to hear it, I shan't deny him that. Burns had yet to be rediscovered. Uh, this was before the Sunshine Boys, when actually Jack Benny was still in, in rehearsal with Walter Matthau to play the other old man. But I certainly appreciated who George Burns was from all those years of Burns and Allen on the radio and television and the Paramount films, and that he was one of those guys, those comedians from that age of vaudeville and all that stuff. So I was nervous about meeting him because I didn't know what kind of person he was and the idea that we would be sitting at the same lunch table and the doorbell rang and I answered it and he looked up and smiled and said hi you want to live to be an old man become an actor you'll you'll live to be an old man like Groucho and me okay let's eat and we shuffled he shuffled into the dining room and sat down and it was very cordial and and comfortable between them and I, I would, I sat back, you know, they, they would argue not bitterly, but, you know, Groucho would say, you remember the, the Pantages Theater in Chicago because Hoppe was fucking the daughter of the manager. And Burns would say, no, Groucho, that wasn't the Pantages. That was the Orpheum Theater because the Pantages was next to the candy store. And it, and it, it would have reminded me of the Sunshine Boys if, if the film had existed yet, that here are these two <laughs> old guys going. And I had recently seen International House and asked him about working with W.C. Fields. And he told me that he gave Fields a gag that involved a coffee cup. I can't remember. It was like pouring a coffee cup with a tea bag in it or something like that. And he said, and, and Fields used that in the picture. He put it in the picture. I gave him that. After lunch, Burns took out his cigar. I was very happy Groucho had given up cigars, even though those were his trademark. I hate the smell of cigar smoke, and a lot of Groucho's friends still smoked, so sometimes the house would smell of them, but at least I wasn't subjected to that. But Burns still did, and he took out a cigar, and he pushed it into the plastic holder, and he said, I never smoke expensive cigars. All I care is if it fits the holder. Now, Milton Burrow, he pays $2 a piece for his cigars. If I paid that much for a cigar, I'd go to bed with it before I'd smoke it. So it was a very, and then I had a photo of Burns and Allen, and he autographed that for me. And it was just a delight. And years later, I guess it was 84, I was living in New York and writing for Cavett, and Cavett was part of a special being taped at the Palace Theater. No, it wasn't the Palace. It was the, no, it was the Palace Theater. And George Burns was one of the people in the special. 
And it was a really, it was wonderful. I, I was there for a rehearsal and Cabot and I were up in one of those box seats that overlooked the stage. And we were watching Burns rehearsing, singing Young at Heart. And it was sort of, it was so touching to to see him singing. And if you should survive, do 105. And I'm thinking he may go any time now, but he lasted like another 12 years. And I went backstage and I said, I met you once before when you came to lunch at Groucho's. And he said, oh, I remember that. That woman was writing that book. And I thought a moment and I thought, oh, he's right. Lynn Earhart, Charlotte Chandler was taking notes that day for her book. And she was also at the table. I had forgotten that, but George Burns had remembered that. Just an astonishing memory. And I also years later, like around 2005, I met Red Buttons. And I mentioned having met him at Groucho's at lunch. And he said, we had lamb chops. And I thought, God, that does sound right. It's, you know, you think for these guys, it's just one in thousands of experiences. But to remember that that woman was there when George Burns was there, or that we had lamb chops when Red Buttons came over. Anyway, there's that one. Old comics never forget a meal. (laughs) (laughs) But in my case. Here's a question from Joe Irano. Uh, Joe wants to know, and I I suppose he's asking uh, subsequent to what you reported in the uh, afterpiece to the expanded edition of your book, uh, have you kept in touch with Melinda Marks or had any further association with her? Uh, I haven't. I've I've sent an email or two and didn't hear back, and I think it was still the right address, but I didn't, and didn't really have, there wasn't like an important thing I needed to find out or tell her, so I haven't heard back from her, but it meant the world to me when we had that really lengthy conversation, and she was quite emotional on the phone about my book and her memories of her dad and when he died and uh, Aaron, her hatred of Aaron and Aaron threatening to murder Melinda's children and cute crap like that. Well, Barb Halliday asked a, a question about Zeppo. I'm actually going to rephrase this. Um, when Groucho was doing the appearances and promotion for the Animal Crackers re-release, why wasn't Zeppo involved? Was he not interested or was he not asked? Uh, what was the deal there? Well, all right. The correct answer is I don't know. However, here are the elements to take into account. He lived in Palm Springs, which was a big schlep to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. He was never happy as a performer. He didn't like to live in the past. Uh, lest we forget my run-in with him in the garage of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. I don't think he cared that much. And I think it was, you know, also when you read that interview with him in the Marx Brothers scrapbook, he sounds so curt and you have enough now. And I told you that. And we don't, we're going over the same things, you know, um, I just don't think it was of interest to him to be part of the promotion, even though to to people on the outside, they'd say, well, he was one of the Marx Brothers and he's in this and it's this rare opportunity. But I think, 
you know, he had moved on. He was very happy as a super successful agent. And then, uh, you know, in his retirement years, uh, gambling and chasing women in Palm Springs. And I don't just think it wasn't of interest to him. But I don't know for a fact that he was asked and said no. Uh, Rich Lewin said he particularly enjoyed the audio version of your book. And he says, yeah. I know he's a voice actor. Are there any other books he has recorded? No. Good. Short and sweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's, exp- let's expand that question a little yes. bit. Let me take my turn to, to ask for an expansion. Those who loved the audiobook of Raised Eyebrows, which includes of all of the many people I've recommended it to. Thank you. <laughs> both of them. What about fans of your work, though? What else is out there? What other media is available where you can be heard? Well, there are. There is no shortage of of podcasts and radio shows that find their way to YouTube or or just out there. I'm particularly pleased with my Gilbert Gottfried podcast because he was such a blast, and it was such an unexpected delight, especially the first appearance because all he knew about me was that I had written raised eyebrows and could talk about Groucho he didn't know that I was fairly quick on my feet and he didn't know about doing voices so we ended up like being these naughty boys giggling mm-hmm. and uh it was just you know I like intellectual sophisticated stuff but I also it's fun to get puerile and sophomoric and down and dirty which is you know another element of his shows and so it was great fun to just be like these two naughty boys and what was cool was for the first show it we did it as a skype but it was audio only but this was when that filmmaker was making a documentary on gilbert entitled oddly enough, Gilbert, which is really quite wonderful. And you see what a sweet man he really is. And he came into my apartment and was taping, videotaping the whole podcast because he didn't know if he would use clips of it in the film. I knew that he wouldn't because it'd be too many real celebrities that would be talking to Gilbert that he didn't need to have me. But what was great was afterwards he gave me DVD. And so I'm able to watch myself turning purple with my nose running and tears streaming down my face laughing or making Gilbert cackle on my monitor. So I have a a visual record of that uh, laugh fest. And, you know, Cavett is the same way. I mean, he, he people say, oh, he's an intellectual and he's this highbrow and all this stuff. But I remember being at his house in Montauk. And we had a whoopee cushion that sprung a leak. So he figured we should probably fill the sink with water and immerse the whoopee cushion. And then we could locate where the leak was and maybe mend it or something. So we had the, we had this sink of water and he had filled up the, the cushion with air. And so he squeezed it underwater that made this sort of sound and he said i'll bet that's what a hippopotamus fart sounds like and it's he's probably right i mean in addition to the fact that it was funny if you think about it that is probably what it would sound like so there's sort of nothing too low 
you know, I'm I'm never too highbrow to appreciate stuff, you know, and I love Borat and you know mm-hmm. some of the broad stuff. So both Groucho and Cabot did fart jokes. Yes, there was a walking down the hallway at Groucho's, and one of them escaped from Groucho, and I didn't know if he was going to be embarrassed or if I should pretend I didn't hear it. And he just started in with, I left my fart in San Francisco. <laughs> Speaking of which, Jay Hopkins asks. Yes, Greenman Jay Hopkins. He wants to know if you ever feared for Groucho's life. Yes. That is why we tried the failed coup, the failed removal of Aaron Fleming in late 74. We wanted to replace her with Connie the nurse because Connie was young and attractive, but had a medical background and wasn't crazy. You know, we would hear from the nurses that his blood pressure would get dangerously high when Aaron would scream at him. And we really were afraid that, you know, he would have a stroke or something really just lethal would happen because she was so reckless with her behavior. You know, I spent those three years thinking they were going to end any minute. I never thought I'd meet him. When I saw him at the Dorothy Chandler in 72, I thought, this is as close as I will ever to be, be to my hero, the back of a cavernous auditorium. And then meeting him at UCLA, it was like, wow, it's actually him. He's sitting here talking to me. I can't believe this is happening. And then to work in his house. But, you know, I, I think the book starts with me showing up at his house on a day that he had had a stroke. And I thought, that's it. Uh, uh, I lasted three weeks or whatever it was. And, and, that the carriage is turning back into a pumpkin and I'll be thankful for what I had. And then he bounced back from that and many subsequent health scares. But I was always thinking it's about to end and just somehow it lasted. I lasted and he lasted another three years. And of course, when it really was time for him to go, it was that horrible mixed feelings of he is better off. What is the quality of his life? You know, he had said at the hospital, this is no way to live, which is sad and true. And anyone who's had to deal with an elderly relative or friend or even like having to put a pet to sleep, it's a horrible thing of I want them here selfishly for me, but what is best for them? And it really was time for him to shuffle off the mortal coil and so my time there had to draw to a close, but it was a remarkable ride. I see you are dumbstruck by what sounded like a fairly decent final comment. I was going to say, that's such a perfect end there. That, yeah. And you don't want to hear a question from Eddie Deason, do you? So, Why not? <laughs> well, Eddie asks all in caps. I'll read he his He asks everything in caps. You. I'm going to read it in normal case, though. Uh, he says, I love Steve. Aww. A few people on his page kept giving me shit because I write in all caps. Steve always stood up for me, Aww. told him to get off my back. He is a great guy. Um, you can stop there. No. His question is. <laughs> There's a but. But. Yeah. But. <laughs> I've always wanted to know Groucho's favorite movies. Not his own, but just favorite movies. Well, here's a dull thing to end with. I don't know. 
it never really came up. He liked different kinds of movies. I mean, he liked dramas and he liked comedies and uh, romantic comedies. But I, I, he never had any kind of top ten list or, you know, looked at his watch and said, oh, Gone with the Wind is on. I don't want to miss this. Uh, I really don't know uh, what his favorite movies were. And I, it, I don't know. I think you can read whatever he has written or has been written about him, and you'd be hard pressed to find him saying, "Now, Mrs. Smith goes to Washington" was the finest movie. Yeah. yeah. So sorry to end on a thud. I think that's a good point, though, actually, isn't it? But just because because he was in movies, it doesn't necessarily follow that it's going to be a big a big passion of his. Obviously, obviously, he watched movies, but no, there's all those misconceptions about celebrities being into celebrities um there's the story about uh, when groucho was drive still had his driver's license and the cop that pulled him over and wrote him a ticket said why aren't there more laurel and hardy movies on tv <laughs> and it's like like he's supposed to know that because he's in the business and and they're both comedians so why and i remember C cavett telling me he was at a coffee shop in colorado and the waitress, trying to impress him, said, you know, John Ireland often comes to Denver. And Cavett said, really, I wonder if John Denver often goes to Ireland. And she <laughs> was pissed. Uh, it's a great line, especially to come up with off the bat like that. And she just thought that that was so rude of him to say that. But it was, of course, the perfect answer. And why would Dick Cavett give a shit that veteran actor john ireland often came to denver colorado but yes that idea that everyone in show business is into everyone else's career knows them and has all the answers which you know they don't including me well we appreciate the answers you gave us and i hope uh we opened some doors for you that uh, you don't normally go through you did, and I'm I'm sorry I didn't have great answers for all of them, but I think it was good that it was off the cuff rather than providing me with them ahead of time. I don't know that they would have been different if I'd been able to think about them. Uh, yeah, and I hope that the listeners find interesting stuff that's just to the left or right of the text or other <laughs> podcasts. I think I really appreciate, and I'm sure the listeners will appreciate the update about the film too. I, it's yeah. one of those things everyone's thinking about all the time. And I think one thing that's really nice about that subject is when I hear Marx Brothers fans talk about it, uh, they're right with you on it. Uh, the, you know, everyone trusts the integrity yeah. of your protection of the story. Everyone really wants it to be what you want it to be. Well, I hope so, because I got a lot of shit from signing with Rob and people really thought, well, you know, and the, you know, and the first time I was emailing him, I said, well, wait a minute, you're not mm -hmm. planning on having like Sid Haig play Groucho or you know, it's like, no, it's not going to be a Rob zombie movie. It's going to be your book, which was, you know, it all came from someone saying to me, did you read the latest issue of Mojo magazine? And I said, I don't, what is that? And he said, it's a British heavy metal magazine i said oh i have a lifetime subscription and he said well there's an interview with rob zombie 
and they ask him, what's your favorite this, favorite this? And they said, what's your favorite book? And he said, Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House. It was written by this kid that was a fan that went to work at Groucho's mm-hmm. and there was this crazy li- – and it's like, oh, my God. I, you know, And that's what caused me to reach out to him just to thank him for that. And he said, have you ever thought of doing it as a film? And I had recently done a draft and was just about to sign for just – a handful of dollars the only guy that said i'd like to try to get this going and i didn't have much faith in him but he was the only game in town but luckily nothing had been agreed upon so i threw in with rob which i don't regret because mm-hmm. it still got the ball further to the goalpost a very rare sports analogy for me and i think we can reassure the multitudes okay fellas right, thanks steve thanks 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 again for coming as a pleasure to have the contemporary version of Steve Stolier on the podcast. Yep. Thanks, Steve. Cheers. Oh, and we should mention that if you want a personally autographed copy of Raised Eyebrows, uh, all you have to do is go to stevestolier.com slash shop and uh, fill out the information and uh, Steve will get you one. Oh, obviously you have to send them the money. And as soon as the check clears, Steve will autograph a book for you and send it out. So I recommend uh, ordering one soon because once this movie hits, uh, Steve might not be so available to be signing books. Which reminds me that nobody asked a question about him signing Groucho autographs. Oh, wait just a minute here. Let's not get in trouble. Steve never signed the Groucho autograph. He sometimes did the inscriptions. All the Groucho autographs are real. But now that you mention it, I am curious if you order an autograph book, whether that will be Steve uh, doing the inscription or whether he's having, you know, Jay Hopkins do it. <laughs> and if you decide to purchase the audiobook, which we've, we all enthusiastically recommend, um, obviously it's not as rich an opportunity for autographs, but if you meet Steve sometime, maybe he will sign <laughs> your ears. Okay, so that's going to about do it. Uh, well, since Steve isn't here, we're going to have to guess what he would want as a final song. You guys have any guesses? What, what, what would Steve like to hear? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I know he did not like the song that was written for the Groucho special that never happened. Uh, who's that man with a cigar in his hand? It's Groucho. It's Groucho. He sings that in the audiobook. Maybe we could use that. We could grab that. Uh, do you think you like that? Nah, never mind. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Uh, are you ready, Melinda? Yes. I tell you, I'll stand over here. You you met Mr. Fenneman, haven't you? Yes. Oh, yes, sure. Hi, Melinda. Comes from China. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Meekin, are you ready? There's beauty in the bell of the blast. There's grandeur in the growling of the gale. There's eloquent up pouring when the lion is roaring and the tiger is the lashing of his tail. Yes, I like to see a tiger from the Congo or the Niger and especially when he's lashing of his tail. Thou canest have a splendid day squint and if he's only terrified the dolls. But to him it's scientific, there's nothing that's terrific in a flying of a fighter from the boat. Yet in spite of all my meekness, if I have a little weakness, it's a passion for a flight of thunderbolts. If that is so sing Derry down Derry, it's evident Derry I taste so warm. Away we'll go and merrily marry, no toddly tarry till day is done. There's beauty in extreme old age. 
Do you think that you are elderly enough? Information I'm requesting on a subject interesting is a maiden all the better if she's tough. Yes, the Rob the Wise of Many, it's a general opinion that she lasts a good long when she's tough. Are you old enough to marry, do you think? Won't you wait till you are 80 in the shade? There's a fascination frantic in a ruin that's romantic. Do you think you are sufficiently decayed? To a matter that you mention, I've given some attention. And I think I am sufficiently decayed. That is so sing, dairy, down, dairy, it's evident, very untaste, so long. Away we'll go and merrily marry, no toddly, carry the day is done. The day is Brush your teeth and kiss the cat goodnight. <laughs> the Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced and edited by Bob Gassell, Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time! <laughs>